Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jane Miles. She's a badass in the world of the ridiculous universe of clinical trials, being the way that drug development actually happens, and yet it doesn't actually happen. Trial enrollment has been a shit show for 20 years, but she is one of the few people actually doing something about it. Jane is the vice president of clinical trial innovation at CureBase, which is a lot of jargon, but she's a really big deal in the world of decentralized trials, which means they come to you instead of you going to them. We had a couple of audio glitches, so we thank you for your patience. But that said, it's a great conversation. Enjoy the show. Jane Miles, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. I'm super curious and excited. Well, ask me questions. I'll ask you questions. I have a whole lineup of things. And, you know, shout out to our dear friend, um, Grace Vinton, for getting the hookup. How do you know her? Well, uh, Grace helped me prepare for some events. And then I had the opportunity to meet her in person in September after she had been at a very special event with one of those VIPs. And it was just such delight to meet her in person. Oh, she's she's magnificent. Absolutely fantastic human being. She alluded to the fact that I could start out with something that isn't so professional in that we're both musicians, professional musicians. And do people still know that about you? Or is this all like your careers obfuscated that? Oh, yeah. I'm not a professional musician. Oh, come <laughs> on. She told me you're fantastic. Untrue. I... I studied music a lot as a kid and through my college years. And I talk about it because I refer to all the skills I learned being a musician every day, actually. So um, although I'm not a professional musician, those skills I learned when I was really deep in that journey come into play every day. And every time I'm on stage. So I'm not a pianist anymore. And in my mind's eye, I might be a hairband lead <laughs> singer. Um, but I do have a son who is a rock star and he's putting his ax down for a while. He, he could be Slash, but okay. he's trying on engineering as an academic discipline and it won't surprise me at all if he turns to the guitar regularly for stress management i'm going to just say you're a professional musician maybe maybe it's like like retired army general (laughs) 
Oh, thanks. <laughs> but if you're still referencing it in your life every day as practice, it's in your blood, it's in your genes. I think so. And now you're making me think of Rod Stewart. So there you go. Pop culture reference achieved. Uh, and I'll channel Joan Jett at the same time then. Ooh. Okay, I'll take it. So how the heck do you get from music to what the heck we do now? I had a music teacher who had been through a very serious personal crisis when her husband was diagnosed with cancer, actually. And my music teacher became the primary breadwinner in her household. Her husband was a professor of engineering, of all things. And when I was trying to make a decision, like, what do I want to do? Because I'm literally torn between science and music. She sat me down and had the world's best and most supportive, difficult conversation and said, listen, you're pretty good at music. You work your butt off to achieve what you do. And your career options in science are just a lot broader. Mm -hmm. So her guidance to me, and I... I really am so grateful was go try the science. If you hate it, you can come back to music, but going in the opposite direction is a much harder path. I, I mean, no offense to marching band directors at high schools. Cause I have the fondest affection for the, the gentleman that stewarded me through all of those, uh, those football field rehearsals. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult field to make a living in. It's a passion project like any other almost like a civil service if you're, if you're a teacher. I think you'd agree that music and science really do go together. And piano's weird. It's both your hands. It uses like so many different senses at the same time. There's got to be some, don't you think, a neural link between the two? Oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, my mom said to me not too long ago, how the heck did you learn to type so fast? I was like, remember all those music lessons you paid for? Uh -huh. Very nice. Very nice. Anyway, that is exactly why my son is now thinking about being an engineer because he watched the very hard road. His world-class teacher has been on trying to make a living in this space. And what was really fun was when my son, whose name is Jake, discovered Jimi Hendrix, YouTube helped him find Robert Johnson. Ooh. And that was like, oh, <laughs> okay. So I kind of love that although he's very tech enabled, he is not a tech first kid. And yet his whole musical journey got influenced by algorithms he had no influence over. So raising a musician as a musician is something I love my children, but they didn't get the music genes. What's it like to see this blossom? Oh, it's so exciting. Like what makes me most happy and what I miss most now, because he's in Wisconsin, is that I would be doing my work and suddenly there would be Foo Fighters coming out of the bedroom or maybe it was Leonard Skinner or maybe it was Pink Floyd. But all of that, his ability to just hear it and execute it and then iterate on it gave me great delight. That's so fantastic. That is absolutely a great way to start this conversation. I kind of trolled your LinkedIn and I got a lot of seeding, seedlings from um, from Grace, of course. But you are, like me, a, a pharma burnout victim. 
And <laughs> I was an agency and farmer for a while before I started Stupid Cancer, uh, the nonprofit that I that I for the young adult cancer community. And do you want to talk about your time in pharma? Was it a teacher? Was it all just like you want to just bang your head against the wall? Oh, heck no. I loved being in pharma. Now, every job has days where you're like, what the heck? But I fell into pharma. <laughs> I'm going to say, thank goodness I went to that lab. Like so many people, drug development was not even on my radar as a career option. And in fourth year university, we had a pharmacology lab where some people who worked for Eli Lilly actually came and spoke to our university class. And they talked about different careers within pharma. And my eyes were just like saucers. I was like, who knew? And then it wasn't a straight path there. I ended up doing a degree in pharmacology and toxicology, which I still love. And then I ended up working, of all things, doing analytical chemistry in a pharmacology lab for a big pharma development company. But what was super cool was that I ended up in an experimental setting. So I was doing experiments, but the actual context for the work team I was in was also experimental because the pharma company was testing the concept of self-directed work teams and they decided to choose our little work group as the place to run the pilot. No pressure. Oh, it was awesome, actually. Like, we were all brand new to the company, except for our manager. It was truly a lab within a lab, trying to learn how do you manage resources? How do you actually share instrumentation? How do you meet customer demands and timelines? How do you resolve conflict? So that concept is you have a manager, but the manager isn't really directing you on a daily basis. You go to the manager like when there's no way to resolve the conflict. And because it was pretty new for all of us, like first, what we were doing was new. Second, the lab itself was new. And third, this concept was new. It was like the best ever learning lens and it led me to realize how much I enjoyed helping people kind of self-actualize, learning what they were good at, learning how they could ask for help. And also I found out, and this surprised me a lot, I wasn't conflict averse at all. I mean, I didn't seek it, but I didn't avoid it. And that would never have been the way that I had described myself before I got into that situation. So you're at the forefront of big ideas at the time. Did you foresee what was going to happen in healthcare? A little. So I remember like this was my first six months working at this big pharma giant. And I remember being in a conversation with one of the senior leaders who worked on policy at the government level. And I said, so tell me why it is that we work on symptom treatment instead of disease prevention. And he just looked at me like, you think we have those tools? I was like, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> but maybe that's because I had studied pharmacology and I was super interested in where things were going to go with genomics and being able to actually manufacture custom molecules and biologics. And then one day 
after a whole bunch of different iterations, I ended up in my dream job at this place where they did the very first recombinant DNA work. And I spent a lot of years there kind of reveling in that realization of scientific possibility in the transformation of medicine. Well, that's a great place to take a break. We'll be right back with Jane Miles. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jargon and nerdiness and, and syllables aside, you know, we're both fans of, of uh, Craig Lipset, and he's been on the show, I think, twice. But for the sake of the listeners, like, I've, I'm on always, like, angry about the fact that, you know, this this uh, <laughs> endlessly ridiculous continuum of no one can get to a trial site, or if you qualify, some fax machine broke and you can't get in there. It's, it's nonsense. It, it, it's been this way for so many years now. But this layperson idea of, well, let's just bring the clinical trial to you. How novel. But now it's kind of a real thing. It's pretty real. And it's what I work on every day. So I can say it can be done. It does require some different thinking. What are you eliminating in terms of the, uh, the cholesterol in the order of getting people to the trial? Obviously, geography is one, but are there additional hurdles that have yet to be solved to make this, like, uh, I, I won't say commercializable, but maybe, maybe available to everyone at scale? Oh, yeah, lots of things. Like, you and I have just had a whole bunch of little tech glitches that comes up, right? So you could decentralize the trial and take the trial to the patient through technology or mobile health services. And if that tech breaks in the middle of the visit, you'd better have a way to store the data and upload it when the Wi-Fi comes back on. The way that I think about it actually is that you didn't change 
the requirements for the trial. You change the workflow and handoffs in the trial. Mm. And if you don't really carefully think about how those handoffs changed, you're going to have a break in the system. So I encourage teams to really do a detailed workflow, not just from the patient point of view, which is really critically important, but also from all the points of care that will touch that patient along the points of the clinical trial process or visit. Let's say you're doing a trial and you have to have some screening labs to confirm that you're eligible. You could send a phlebotomist or a mobile nurse to that patient's home, but you're going to have to be really clear on how long before the actual screening window closes they have to be there, what consumables they need for the visit, if there's going to be a centrifuge required, who's going to take the samples off to what shipment facility, etc. So it's not that it's new, it's that some of those processes are very much taken for granted when they're done within the context of a brick and mortar site. Right. So different problems to have. Eh, yeah. And I think while you're taking the trial to the patient, sometimes you end up, and maybe this will change over time, but sometimes you have to kind of develop parallel workflows. What does that mean? Well, like Craig would say, you don't necessarily want your Amazon cart to refill in perpetuity in the same way you might think if it's a 12-visit study, it could be that sometimes the patient would choose to see the physician even if they could do the visit from home. And so this is what we think about when we're talking about patient optionality and how you put parameters around the trial visits to allow for that choice between both the physician and the patient, depending on their circumstances and, frankly, how they're doing with whatever symptoms they're managing. Understood. So let, let's then put this in the perspective of the, you know, the poor schmuck in the room with cancer, right? They don't want to be there. And this whole notion of there's a trial for you is kind of scary to the uninformed because it still sounds like you're going to be a guinea pig. And I don't think we're ever going to get out of that way because we're not renaming the words clinical trials. Does it ever come up, oh, I can't afford this or, oh, that's in Texas? Talk to us about the evolving conversation that we hope is happening between that oncologist or that doctor and that human being. Oh, boy, I could go on and on here. So <laughs> pick your poison. <laughs> let me start from a point of contention. I've been working on trying to bring patient facing technology to improve patient experience for a long time. And I get really angry if you want to know the truth when people say this stuff is not for oncology patients. I'm like, of course it is. These are patients who desperately need these new methods to decrease the burden on them as they're managing the chaos of the disease process. Furthermore, their, their family needs it too because no one goes through that treatment journey alone. So if we can find ways to help patients connect to trials without adding to the burden that they're already taking on just to fight the disease, it's a win. Now, how might you do that? I've done a ton of brick and mortar oncology studies. 
But what I'm hoping for, I guess my vision for the future, and I will say it doesn't exist quite yet, is that you could enter a trial at MSK. And maybe you do have to go once. But then you get to be in that trial with the oversight of the physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering and be treated by your own oncologist. So they're working together for you to be in a trial while you're getting cared for by the person you already knew. Like I said, that's just not the way things are typical right now. I've seen a few situations where that happens, but I think that's what we're aiming for. And frankly, I think we may see a change in that term clinical trial over time because as data is becoming more accessible and even more important in treatment decisions, I think you're going to see a, a shift away from a discrete clinical trial setting into a combination of clinical trial and clinical care with the integration of real-world data into the long-term follow-up for patients. Yeah, I'm still stuck on the whole, can this work in your house if your Wi-Fi goes out? And what does that mean <laughs> for the can. entire program? I mean, that's something so relatable to everyone at this point today. But if, you're, if your regiment is dependent on Wi-Fi or these communications platforms constantly getting in touch with these other things, th that could be even more dangerous than you never getting into the trial at all if you can't go to MD Anderson. Yes, there are ways to solve for that, though. Now, you can help ensure that the communication modalities are more stable. You can provide nodes to patients. And this is actually important because... One of the other things we're trying to solve for with these decentralized trials is geography and also access based on social determinants of health. And that's really on our minds. Like we don't want to create a new barrier that didn't exist before. So uh, I'm kind of excited that the FDA has given us a, a peek here saying it's in a draft guidance that you can't exclude a patient on the basis of lack of access to technology. Mm. So that means you've got to find a way to enable the trial with the technology in the patient's home. And that's enter the Amazon drone. Well, it could be. I mean, I've, I've seen that at Stanford football games, but yeah. <laughs> um, it could be, and this is an evolving model as well. Okay. Maybe your Wi-Fi at home isn't that stable Maybe you're a mile away from a Walgreens or a CVS where you could go and have some of the trial procedures done in their setting. Because the other thing that comes up, and, and my dear friend Del Smith reminds me of this a lot, is you know some people just don't want strangers in their home. It's their safe space. So Correct. we have to find a way for that trial to be where the patient wants it to be. I know I, I love this line of thinking because it opens up a whole new, I don't know, Pandora's box of things to have to think about, which again are better problems to have because we're moving in the direction that flips the script entirely on what's just been, you know, status quo for so many years. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be taken on our terms or, or not anymore. 
I want to spend the rest of the conversation on what I was reading is patient insights. and pa- it, I remember the days in, in like the 2000s when there were no laws and no rules and anything went with people. And, you know, even HIPAA was kind of a loosey-goosey thing. And now lawyers, their butts are so tight with everything now that it's possible to have this process be perceived as predatory and that you've encountered like crazy legal situations that you had to overcome. Kind of. So remember, I've been at this a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me tell you a story, and it'll illustrate how things have flipped over. So around 2011, I think it was around 2011, let's say 2012, I worked with an expert in communications and media to draft the first ever social media policy for use in drug development at a big pharma company. And I worked with a lot of stakeholders, legal, corporate relations, corporate communication, compliance. It was not something I just wrote by myself. And I remember going to the headquarters of the pharma company and talking to them about this idea, like, by the way, patients are engaged. And by the way, we have a way to communicate with them that's safe about trials as treatment options. And... By the way, they've told us they want that. And the headquarters was in a country other than the United States. And the folks who were involved in this conversation with me were pretty senior. And they were like, oh, absolutely not. I was like, (laughs) say more. And they're like, well, actually, having read your document, we're about to propose a recommendation to our standard informed consent template stating that no patient enrolled in any of our trials will engage in the use of social media for the duration of their participation. It's just like, what? yeah, no, sorry. There's this thing called the constitution and freedom of speech, <laughs> at least where I live. So no, <laughs> but it was really fascinating because it, and I remember even in that moment, having this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach because these people were well-intended But I was like, you need to understand that we have to move out of a control setting into a managed information setting and an exchange, a bi-directional exchange of information as we work on behalf of patients and with patients. Right. So fast forward 10 years. Oh, my gosh. The thing that surprises me now is the opposite And that is that so many organizations believe social media is the only path to patient recruitment. I'm like, you could not be more misinformed. Oh, dear God. Really? But if you've worked only in, I don't know the right way to say this, direct-to-consumer settings, you think that that's just the magic bullet. I was a little naive thinking it would be an even bigger solution than it turned out to be in those early days. But in that 10-year span, I've realized, as with many things in trials, this takes a a multifaceted approach, and there's an art to it to make it work well. Jane Niles, we're at the end of the conversation, and I wanted to kind of give you like like a hot take question. And it's like, should we be optimistic or cynical anymore about this? Will we be seeing actual progress in the next three to five years for all of this? bumps along the road expected? 
Oh, absolutely. We, we're going to see great progress made in the next three years. And that doesn't mean everything's going to succeed. I think we're going to learn there are some things that aren't a great fit yet, or we're going to need some changes in some fundamental rules, I'll call them, to make it work. You are the VP of Clinical Trial Innovation at CureBase, curebase.com. And I'm going to mispronounce these syllables. The co-lead of Priority Initiative 3B DCT Playbook. I'm scraping from LinkedIn. Of the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance DTRA. Is that accurate? That is absolutely correct. All right. Link in the description to your LinkedIn profile. I'm so excited to have had you on the show. And you look, I mean, we're giving epic shout outs here to you know Alicia and Stacy and, and Craig and everything. This is, a, a, we're all facing the same direction. We're all facing forward. And I'm glad we're all just, you know, we're doing our part, and I commend you. And keep playing that guitar. <laughs> well, I can't at all. But I will keep encouraging my rock star. There you go. Have a great one, Jane. Thank you very much. Thanks. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.